If you look at the, at the image on the stained glass behind me, you see our God in the form of a man named Jesus. And how many of you ever spend any time just meditating and reflecting on that image? Maybe when the sermon is going a little long or a little boring. Or maybe you just come in here and you find consolation in that. I know I do. There's like a hundred different ways to look at that picture, if not more. This week we had a lady come into our church and she had been here a long time ago. And she remembered this this scene that uh, is depicted in the stained glass and, and sort of the, the storied element to it. And she said, um, I, I, I've come to uh, uh, sit in your sanctuary if you don't mind because I just want to look at that picture and I just want to spend some time thinking about it. And I, I noticed that when she made that request that she was pretty heavy laden. She was almost in, 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 in a state of tears because uh, the things that were going on in her world were just too overwhelming and she needed that sense of God's presence. And this is where she came. And as she shared the circumstances of her life, it wasn't so much her, but, um, but, but, but one of her kids who had been diagnosed with brain cancer and all of the difficulties in watching that, that adult child begin to deteriorate uh, through the process of chemotherapy and, and aggressive um, uh, effects of cancer on her brain. And as she was just overwhelmed by the thought, she came here and she says, I just need to look at that picture right now. It's the only thing I think that can help me. And so I prayed with her and she shared a little bit more. And then she came in and she just meditated for a while. And one thing I like about our faith is it is centered in a person that is literally down to earth. The scriptures say that well uh, on so many fronts. And it is a comparison to the other religions that people worshipped in that day. And one of those religions uh, was predominant just about uh, 175 years prior to Jesus' coming. uh, When the Greeks had established uh, their empire. And in that place of worship that God's people would go, the children of Abraham, there was an image that looked kind of like this. Let's go ahead and show this image, um, if we can, Brian. Uh, It's an image of Zeus. And there was a point in time when people gathered for worship in the temple before Jesus came. And when they did... Because the Greeks had so heavy-handedly said that you're no longer going to worship the God of Abraham, you're going to worship this God, Zeus, because of all the gods in the Greek pantheon, he is sort of like number one. And he is the God of gods. He's the most powerful one uh, in the contingent of gods. And we're going to make it known that as we establish our presence, this statue that we're setting up in the temple, in the most sacred part of the temple, is going to be a representation of the God that you need to worship. And there were a lot of people who felt the oppressive hand of the, of the, of the Greek Empire and it, it would morph into the Roman Empire. But in the, that moment, there were a number of people like yourself who were saying, 
we know that our sinful ways, we know that the ways of our people, we know that our country has been turned away from you, God. But there is a remnant of us that says we want you, God, to be established on your throne. And we want what is abominable in your temple to be replaced with that which is holy and sacred. And there was a family of, of, of a father and five sons. And, and the father's name was Matthias. And he had a son named uh, Judah or Judas. And there were four more brothers. And they said, we're going to revolt against the presence of these oppressive tyrants who have destroyed our way of life and have desecrated our temple and have taken all sense of consolation out of our lives. And if you're with me so far... As they began to think about how just a small band of people could revolt against a powerful army like, like, the, like, the, like the Greeks had at that point, they, they, they were so driven to see things put right that they spent three years revolting against the establishment of the Greek presence in their country and especially against this statue that was front and center in their place of worship. Now could you imagine that picture being that picture? What would it be like if you guys gathered for worship with me today and uh, we saw not Jesus in a pastoral setting holding a lamb and just thinking back to this person who had come and and just express the desire to look at that picture and meditate on it. She said, when I see that lamb, I see Jesus holding my daughter. And when I see the, the mother lamb, the ewe lamb, looking up at that little lamb, I, I, I see myself looking at my daughter being held by the arms of Jesus. And it was the one thing that helped her to see that there is a hope beyond what she's experiencing. But if you were to replace that image with a very powerful presence of a Greek god in the Greek pantheon who is holding a trident and he's just saying that I am, I, I am a god who present, presents myself as basically the most powerful not necessarily compassionate by any stretch or loving or one who offers hope, but one who just says, I'm in charge. And as people looked at that image, and when it was eventually replaced through the, what was known as the Maccabean Revolt, it, it says in the book of First Maccabees, which is just a historical book. It's not in the Bible, but it is, it is a very good book historically. It said that when everything was finally made right and the Greeks were overthrown and that, that awful depiction of Zeus was removed from the temple, there was a, a dedication that was made. And when that dedication was made, there was the presence of Judas Maccabees and, and his army coming into the city of Jerusalem as an act of celebration in defiance to the powers that were working against them. And as they began to, 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 to reach the, the processional uh, parade moment, there was just the waving of all of these palms. And it was, an, it, it was a, a statement that a king has been 
established with our people. And, and Judas Maccabeus was known in that moment as uh, their, their ruler because he had done the unthinkable, the unimaginable, and he had set things right. And it was really a proud moment for God's people because they were longing for that day. But they also knew that they were still vulnerable to the forces at work in the world. And it wasn't very long after that that a, a new emperor came into town. Emperor um, Octavius Augustus, who began to take over everything that Alexander the Great had established and those who followed him. And it was just the exchange of one oppressive set of rulers and tyrants for another. And I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel like we, we still live in that moment. Where we're trying to be God's people, we're trying to do the right thing, we're trying to live in a way that honors God, and we're trying to keep our, our hearts pure, uh, we're trying to focus our eyes on things that are good and holy and right and noble and pure and just, and yet in all of that we find that out there, there is just an increasing amount of corruption, there's an increasing amount of disregard for the things of God, and there's just a heavy push that we feel that is working against the purposes of God. And I suppose that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who the ruler is, if it's, if it's Napoleon or if it's Octavian Augustus or if it's Alexander the Great or if it's Nebuchadnezzar, just pick your ruler because I think behind those thrones is another ruler. And he's the ruler that goes all the way back. And Zeus being in charge of the pantheon, it, is, it has been understood that even above him there is one named Lucifer who is, according to the temptation scenarios of Jesus, He's the one in charge. He's the one who says, I have been given authority and now I am going to give you, Jesus, the possibility of just being second to me. And Jesus said, no, we're not doing it that way. And when Jesus came into Jerusalem, it was a defining moment on what we call Palm Sunday. It was a statement that Jesus made to everyone that he was beginning to establish his rightful rule. Now here's what happened. Let's just pick it up in John chapter 12. Because I think he says it really well. And he says some things in there that I think will speak words of hope to you. And to, to my newfound friend that I met last week. And to the possibility of if there is no healing for her daughter. That she will see her again in the resurrection. So in John 12 verses 9 through um, um, 19. It says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom, they raised from, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on, on account of him, uh, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the east heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and 
and, and they went out to meet him and crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as is written in Zechariah 9.9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. The future began to prove what the past events signified. And they had been done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone out after him. Now, at the beginning of, the, of, the, of our t- worship time together, do you remember me saying it's sort of a mishmash of Hanukkah and Passover? Palm Sunday is. It, 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 and going back into the story a little bit, Jesus is getting ready to celebrate Passover with um, uh, the, uh, uh, the rest of the worshipers. I mean, it is one of the most important festivals that would be... Uh, would be considered in that, in, that, in that day and age because it was a defining moment for those people to see that they were formed out of Egypt in through uh, a, a miraculous deliverance into the promised land. And as they commemorated that every year, uh, we know that there is that Passover meal where the, the doorpost had blood shed on it uh, so that the death angel would not come and take the firstborn uh, child, male of the, um, of the home that, that it, it passed over. And so the Jews just kept that locked away in their mind. And when they did, they recognized that that was God's way of telling them that they were chosen, that they had been spared, that God had taken a merciful act and redefined their community around Moses and the law that he had given. And they didn't want to forget it. And Jesus celebrating that wanted to give us a sense that the Passover was being redefined. Now there's another ceremony that happens. It's a Jewish ceremony. It's called Hanukkah. And if you've ever uh, been around any Jewish people, you know that it, it occurs right around our Christmas time. And in a lot of ways, uh, there's a lot of overlap. But at the end of the day, it is, uh, it, it is, a, it is a winter commemoration of the victory of Judas Maccabees and his brothers and their army against uh, the, the, the evil tyrants that had oppressed them and especially for the removal of that abomination that was setting, sitting in the middle of the temple. And so they said, we will never forget that either. And when Jesus came in to Jerusalem on that day, it was sort of like a, a sense of, 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 of things being a little bit confused. Can you imagine waking up on Christmas and you find that your Christmas stocking is filled with Easter eggs? And so you're like, okay, this doesn't seem quite right because uh, there's Easter eggs, there's a stocking, and I'm eating the Easter eggs while I'm thinking about Christmas, and for some reason I feel very confused. 
In a sense, what Jesus was doing was taking the substance of what those two holidays mean to us. And he's saying they are now, these holidays that that you have, Hanukkah and uh, the Passover, are actually a, they, they represent what God intended me to become in terms of, 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 of their significance. And the first one, Hanukkah, is that there is, a, there is a king who now has defeated our adversary. And so we remember that king. And Jesus said, I am a king. And your greatest adversary isn't those who sit on the thrones here on earth. The greatest adversary isn't even Lucifer itself. The greatest adversary that you and I have, you know what it is? It's the one that causes us to walk around with grief in our hearts. Because we know that somehow our lives have had an intersection in some way, in some painful way with death itself. And we carry that on for months, if not even years, of the sting of the loss of someone or the fear that we have of our own eventual um, demise as well. And what Jesus wanted to establish was that even death itself, that great ruler overall, that great equalizer, even death itself no longer reigns. But death is about to be defeated. And there is going to be a sense of hope for those who have been defeated by death, who live in the wake of the defeat of death, That because this king is on his throne, even when we have to deal with the tragedies of life, that king will lift us up. And he will say that I have overcome even this. And if you believe in me and you trust me, you'll overcome as well. And so Hanukkah, the time when we lift up a king... Jesus said, on this feast of dedication, he meant, John mentions in 1022, on this feast of dedication, I am establish, establishing myself as that king. I hope I'm not boring you too much with a history lesson here, but I want you to understand something. That in the minds of the people of that day, they were longing like you and I are longing for someone who will come and make it right. But they were fearful that the pattern would just repeat itself over and over and over. Jesus said, when it comes to Hanukkah, I am that king. But he also pointed out that when it comes to Passover, I want you to realize something. That the way that I establish myself as king is through the blood that I have to shed on a cross. But that blood will be representative of a new covenant, a new agreement that a king will have with his people. It's not, it's not too unlike a constitution that a nation has with its rulers. But in this case, it is God saying to you and I, this is a covenant. And it means everything. And I want you to remember every week it is so critical. I want you to look at that loaf and that cup and I want you to see that there is a king behind these emblems. And the power of this loaf and the power of this blood is my way of saying that even death is defeated. That even your sins can be forgiven. 
But there's nothing that can keep you away from God forever. And there's nothing because in that mix, God says, I want to do this together with you. There's nothing that can keep us away from God and from loved ones who, is, who have passed on and us when we pass on and our children and our children's children when we pass on. There's nothing that can keep us from being reunited again for all eternity. Because our mortality in Christ, because Christ is king, is exchanged for immortality. And he gives that to you and I. But the interesting thing about this is the parties that are involved in, the, in these circumstances. We read in the first part of, of the reading from John 12 that the people who had seen Lazarus come up out of the grave... When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and they recognized that Jesus had this power over death. Because we know Jesus waited three days, didn't he? And you know what the King James said? Uh, that if you call him out, Jesus, I like what the King James says, surely he stinketh. I mean, after three days, for sure. But he did not. And though he died again, it was Jesus' way of saying, I want you to see sort of a, a first-hand uh, sense of what the possibilities are that are in front of me as God does the very same thing to me. So when these people gather because of what Lazarus had done, they're assembled like a parade procession on the sidelines just waving these palm branches and saying, that's our king, that's our king, that's our king. That's the one who's going to make it happen. He's going to defeat our enemies once and for all. But they didn't really understand, I think like many of us do, how he had to do it, how he fought. You see, our king fought differently than other kings. He defeated death at its own game but he didn't do it violently. He did it faithfully. The success was based on just honoring obediently the will of God. And it seemed like as he went through the whole unjust series of accusations, the escalating conspiracy against his existence, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, in all of those things, he just passively went along because the thing that was going to defeat death itself was not an act of violence, but an act of love. You catch that? It is the love of Jesus that goes to work to defeat even our greatest enemies. That love disarms the very power of death itself because the blood of the Holy One is, it is so toxic to death, to sin, to shame, to guilt. I mean, it just erases it. My, my, my wife and I went over to uh, Corning, New York, uh, Friday and Saturday to visit her daughter because my wife is always concerned about how, you know, she's doing and whether or not, you know, she's keeping her house clean, cleaning her toilet, you know, all of this stuff, you know, that a mom is fixated on. And, and she's like, I only use 
two things mine am for cleaning. I use a lot of vinegar and water and a spray bottle. And then I'll also use, if that doesn't get it, I'll use Mr. Clean Erase. And that'll pretty much get rid of everything. And what God is saying through the blood of Jesus is it just, it just erases everything at a, at a supernatural spiritual level, at a cosmic level. It begins to undo that which has done us in. So a lot to celebrate on Palm Sunday. But if you're like me, um, it took me a long time to wrap my mind around how God would do it. And probably even more so, how much God loved me. Uh, Basically a non-religious person for a very long time. Until some religious people said, we'd like you to meet Jesus. And if, if, if other people are like me, there's a lot of us out there who are saying, that's the kind of guy we'd love to meet. There's something special about him. There's something compelling and engaging and magnetic. And you know the interesting thing about this story that I just told you is how John sets it up. Because John wants the religious people to understand that the king that you are now worshiping isn't just a small band of Jewish people in a in, a, in an outpost in the Roman Empire that are keeping to themselves, but rather the good news is that the message of this king is for everyone, including the Greeks who established the statue of Zeus on the throne. Is that something? People came in, they were Greek, they put a statue of Zeus on the throne and they said, our God is better than your God and they rubbed their faces in it. And can you imagine being a Greek person and you're saying, yeah, that's our sordid history, but we've been hearing things about Jesus that are drawing us in. But hey, you know what? If I go into that temple, probably lightning bolts are going to fall down on on me. You know, the roof is going to cave in. Have you ever heard people say that? If I go to church, uh, all those things are going to happen. Well, I want you to know a few things here. I, I want you to see three verses that, that just begin to build here that John mentions. First is John 3.16. It says, For God so loved just the Jewish people only. No, he said the whole world. That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then there's another thing that John begins to build on as he says that. And it's in John chapter Uh, 10 and verse 16 it says Jesus is telling his followers got these sheep of Israel over here but I have other sheep that are not in this fold and I must bring them also so that they will listen and, and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock one shepherd and so he's beginning to show us a picture of what God has had in mind to begin with I'll just give you one more verse to round it out and it's in chapter 11 it says The high priest, uh, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. And the high priest had said this, although his convictions were, 
The things of God are only about the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, no one else. But Jesus came because the heart of God looks at all people through time, including you and I. And he says, I know you're broken. I know you're in pain. I know you're longing to be reconnected with me. And I want you to know I've initiated processes so that people can wrap their mind around the fact that I have come to do exactly that. I have come to make you, each of you, each of us in this room, everyone out there into one family. Except for those stupid Greeks because they put that temple up there or they put, that, they put that, that statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. Those guys, that can never be forgiven. But you know that passage of scripture that we just read about the Passover? You know, about Lazarus and people coming to worship Jesus in the streets? Well, the next verse says this. It says in John 12.20, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These are the people that knew. They knew they were guilty. They were guilty of tyrannizing, of oppressing, of bad-mouthing, of exploiting. Just pick whatever word you want that is a dehumanizing word from one group of people to another. And those people would say, yeah, yeah, that was us. But there was something about Jesus that caused them to say, you know what? We know we did that. But we have this sense the God that the Jewish people worship, that even this Jesus that we're beginning to see manifested as the Son of God Himself, that tells us there's something greater. There's something greater than all of my sin. There's something greater than all of our sins. There is a power that can transform. And the Greek people said, we know we've abused you. We know we've hurt you. We know that we've broken you. But there is something forgiving about a bloodstained cross that breaks all of that down. When God looks at us, He doesn't see your sin. He sees you covered by the blood of His Son. And the eyes that He looks at you and I through are filtered through glasses of love. Paul even went so far to write later on in the book of Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek. And he just goes on to list all the differences that people have divided themselves up with. He said, no, we are all a new humanity in Christ Jesus. But his burden is the burden that I bring into this room. And that is, there is an offer that God has made to all of us. that if the Son sets you free, you are truly free indeed. That anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's just as easy as that. 
And it's God's way of saying the battle's already been fought. The enemy has already been defeated. And even your own demons. Well, I've taken care of those too, and I can take care of those. The question that he lays out for us is, have you invited me into your house? Have you made your life hospitable to my presence? Have you said, I, I, I want you, Lord, to be my Savior? And that's all he's asking. Is that if he knocks on the door, he just wants to know if he can come in. And when he does, everything changes. And I can't even begin to, to describe how despair and hopelessness, how fear and doubt because of what he's done are transformed into joy and hope and love. Because he just takes all of that stuff that we've built up in our life and he takes it away from us and replaces it with something better.